0: We have been looking together at the book of Zechariah. And since chapter 1, Zechariah has been shown a series of visions. We were told these are night visions. In chapter 1 verse 8, Zechariah said, during the night I had a vision. And there has been no indication of a break in the visions. So we're to understand that they came one after the other through the night. Now today we come to the last of these night visions in chapter 6. After this last vision, there's a break of 21 months before the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah again. So we're coming here to the end of the first part of the book. And after a night full of visions, chapter 6 is like the sunrise, not just because it's the last vision of the night, but because it's so bright and positive for God's faithful people. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find Zechariah 6 on page 952. And I'll read the whole chapter. I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots, coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? The angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going towards the north country. The one with the white horses towards the west. And the one with the dappled horses towards the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. Then he called to me, look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. The word of the Lord came to me. Take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Jozadak. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will be clothed with majesty. And will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Han, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. This is God's word. If you can remember back to chapter 1, to the first vision, it was a vision of men on horses. And the riders we saw were taking care to conceal themselves. We learned that they were God's military spies. Their job was to patrol and observe throughout the earth. And they were there to assure us that God sees. Nothing escapes his notice. But those writers also brought back a report. This is their report. We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Now that might sound good. Except that it's talking about the nations outside Israel. The nations who oppress Israel. It's God's enemies Who are at rest and in peace. And so the writer's report prompted an outburst from one of the angels who was standing there. Lord Almighty, when are you going to do something about your enemies? How long are you going to leave them at rest and in peace while your people continue to suffer? That was the first vision. Here in the last vision, we again see horses and riders. But the scene is very different. Look again at verse 1. I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled, all of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, What are these, my Lord? The angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. In the first vision, God's riders were on horseback. Now they're on chariots. And the significance of that is that we're not dealing with military spies anymore. This is an army going on the attack chariots were the ancient equivalent of tanks the message here is that god has seen and now he is doing something about what he has seen in verse 1 zacharias sees four chariots coming out from between two mountains and we learn in verse 5 that they're going out from the presence of the lord So the two mountains symbolize the presence of the Lord. And bronze mountains indicate two things, strength and brightness. Bronze mountains are not going to be shaken. They're not going to crumble. The point is, whatever else might be fragile and vulnerable in this world, the Lord is invulnerable. His position and power are unshakable. And in the Old Testament, bronze also indicates powerful, relentless brightness. For example, when Ezekiel talks about God's attendants, he says they gleamed like burnished bronze. So the picture here is of utter security and constant unrelenting brightness. However shaky and however dark this world might get, when we look up to God, we see only perfect power and unending light. He is strong and he is good all the time. But the focus here is on the chariots streaming out from God's presence, The four that are mentioned here represent an entire army. When we looked at chapter 1, I said that we don't need to try and figure out particular meanings for the colors of the horses. And that's true here as well. You may be aware that the book of Revelation picks up on Zachariah's visions and develops them. Revelation does give meaning to the colors. But we're not to read those later meanings back into the text here. The multicolored horses just indicate that God commands a full variety of forces. Another way to put it is that God doesn't have just one string on his bow. Whatever the situation, God can call on forces that are appropriate for the challenge. And more than equal to the challenge Then in verse 5, the angel describes this rampaging army in another way. The NIV says, These are the four spirits of heaven. Hebrew uses the same word for wind and spirit. So the way it needs to be translated depends on the context. And here it seems better to go with the NIV's footnote These are the four winds of heaven. Now, this expression has already occurred earlier in the book. It's equivalent to talking about the four points of the compass. The point is, this army of God has access to the whole earth. And it is active throughout the whole earth. God's power extends north, south, east, and west. There is no corner that's beyond his reach. When it comes to God's activity in this world, there is no such thing as a no-go area or a no-fly zone. Today, that includes North Korea, for example. And as hard as it might be to believe, it even includes the House of Commons and the House of Lords in Westminster. But having assured us that all four points of the compass are accessible to God, Zechariah now watches as this divine chariot army gallops toward two specific points of the compass. Look at verse 6. And again, the NIV footnote is the better translation here. If we use that footnote, the verse reads, The one with the black horses is going towards the north country. The one with the white horses after them, instead of towards the west. And the one with the dappled horses towards the south. So the army divides in two. The main force, the black and the white horses, gallop north. And the dappled horses head south. You'll notice the red horses aren't mentioned here. It could be they're being held in reserve. But as we watch with Zechariah and see this force being split in two and then heading north and south, we have to ask why. Well, think for a moment where Israel is on a map. To the west is the sea and to the east is the desert. Israel's enemies, when they came, came either from the north or the south. Egypt was the enemy to the south, and at various points in time, the Assyrians and the Babylonians were enemies who came from the north. It was the Assyrians and Babylonians who had taken Israel into exile. So in Israel's recent past, the biggest threat has been from the north. And in this vision, that's where the strongest division of God's army has headed, And the report comes back in verse 8. Look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. In other words, those enemies that were at rest have finally been put to rest. They looked peaceful and secure in their rebellion against God. But God's sovereign power has overcome them. The peace of God's enemies has been replaced by the peace of God's victory. God's people are being assured, not simply that God has power, but that at any point in time, God is aware of the greatest threat to his people. And he's able to meet that threat with whatever is needed to overcome it. Some of you have played the board game Risk. The playing board is usually a world map in that game. Each player is given a certain number of countries on the map and a certain number of soldiers or armies. You have to spread them around as best you can. And part of the challenge is to anticipate where the biggest threat is going to come from. If you focus your armies in the wrong place you risk getting swept off the board when your enemy attacks you from a different direction. The message here is that it's not like that with God. Not only are his invisible armies spread throughout the whole world, those armies will never be found to be thin on the ground at the point where they need to be thick on the ground. God doesn't have to guess where the opposition and the threats are going to come from. He knows. And he will send what is necessary to overcome the threat. God is using Zechariah to encourage his people. As they stand looking around at the ruins of Jerusalem, God is lifting their eyes up. He's showing them just a glimpse of his unconquerable power. His power that will ultimately defeat all the forces of evil. And his power that will bring his people eternal rest in the new heaven and earth. That future rest is made possible because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. At the cross, Jesus defeated our two greatest enemies, sin and death. In Christ, we find true rest from those enemies. We can live our lives at rest because we no no longer need to fear death. And the reason we don't need to fear death is because we don't need to fear God's anger toward our sin. The New Testament says sin is what puts the sting into death. For the guilty sinner, death leads to an eternity of God's wrath. But when we come to Jesus and receive cleansing and forgiveness from our sin, then death has no sting left. It holds nothing for us to fear no wrath and no punishment. For those who are in Christ, death becomes just the gateway into God's presence. And let me suggest another application of this passage. It's to do with our current situation as God's people. You and I might think the biggest threat we face today is our government's attacks on biblical morality. Or we might think it's the outspoken atheism we're being bombarded with. And maybe we wonder why God doesn't seem to be sending his armies after those enemies. Why doesn't he storm the House of Commons and put it all right? Let me suggest that God is not going after those threats Because we face a greater threat today. It's our love affair with wealth and possessions. And our reliance on those things for our security and our peace of mind. That is a far bigger threat to us than any bill that goes through Parliament. Could it be God is graciously attacking that greater threat by allowing bills to be passed that are going to make our lives a lot less comfortable as Christians? Could it be God is going to use the changes in our country to turn his people back to reliance on him? God is much sharper than we are when it comes to identifying our greatest enemies. And he is willing to take away our false sources of rest and peace. So we'll turn again to him for rest and peace. The next section of chapter 6 turns our attention to the one who brings peace. The promise of a priest who will be king. Look at verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me Take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua son of Jozadak. The series of visions is now over, and Zechariah is given a job to do. It seems the Israelites in Jerusalem have recently been joined by a new group of returned exiles. And these new guys have brought some much-needed wealth with them, silver and gold. No doubt if the people in Jerusalem knew about the wealth these men had, They would be pretty excited about it. At this point in time, things are tough in Jerusalem. And it seems these men are eager to hand their wealth over to the community. Think of all the ways it could be used. But there is no way anyone was thinking of using it in the way the Lord tells Zechariah to use it, it's to be made into a crown. And it's to be set on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Now, we have met Joshua before, back in chapter 3. He appeared in one of the earlier visions, and in that vision, he was dressed in a way that was completely inappropriate for the high priest. We're told he was wearing filthy clothes. But the high priest was supposed to be pure and clean. His job was to stand in God's presence and represent the people to God. Filthiness was not appropriate. And now, the second time we meet Joshua, he is again dressed inappropriately. In Israel, the priesthood and the kingship were kept separate. There were dire consequences for a priest who tried to act like a king... Or a king who tried to act like a priest. But here, at God's specific command, the priest is to be crowned as a king. Now, the very first time we met Joshua, God made it clear that he was symbolic of someone else. Dressed in his filthy clothes, Joshua symbolized someone called the branch. Now, that was a kind of code name in the Old Testament for a person who was going to come later. Someone who would come and remove the sin of God's people. And now, here, we're told Joshua, dressed in his crown, is again symbolic of the branch. Look at verse 12. Tell him this is what the Lord Almighty says Here is the man whose name is the branch. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Heldai, Tobijah, Jediah, and Han, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. The branch was referred to by the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. And they stressed that he would be a king who would be a descendant of King David. But the reign of the branch would be even greater than David's. And now we know that this king will also be a priest. In other words, he will not only rule over God's people... He will also represent the people to God. He will offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. This individual will be a unique king and a unique priest. He will unite the two positions. Or as verse 13 puts it, he will bring harmony between the two. We've been hearing a lot in this book about God's city, and within that city, his temple. We've seen how the New Testament develops Zechariah's prophecies to show that the true temple of God is his people, the church. And here in verse 13, we're told this priest king is the one who will build God's true temple. Then verse 14 makes it doubly clear that Joshua the high priest is not this priest king. He's being crowned symbolically to point to the true priest king. The crown is not Joshua's to keep. Once the temple in Jerusalem is rebuilt, the crown is to be stored in the temple as a memorial, a reminder of of the priest-king God's people are to expect. The name Joshua means the Lord saves, or literally Yahweh saves. And this isn't the only Joshua in the Bible. Long, long before this, another Joshua, Joshua son of Nun, had led God's people into the land of Canaan. But that Joshua could not save God's people from their sin. Eventually they were exiled from Canaan because of their sin. Now the exiles have returned and we have met another Joshua. Joshua, son of Jozadak. But we know that he's not able to save his people from their sin. We saw in chapter 3, he is stained with sin himself. Just like everybody else. The crown of the priestly king is not his to wear. But around 500 years after this Joshua, another Joshua arrived. And we know him today by the Greek form of his name, Jesus. And before his birth, God announced that finally a Joshua was coming who would live up to his name, the Lord saves You remember what the angel said to Joseph, Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Around 30 years after that, this true Joshua was dressed in a royal robe. A crown made out of thorns was pressed down on his head. And he was crucified under a notice that said, the king of the Jews. The book of Hebrews tells us that moment where he was mockingly crowned as king. That was also the moment where Jesus did his greatest priestly work. Hebrews chapter 7 says this of Jesus. Unlike the other high priests, He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And then came the real crown for Jesus. He, that's God the Father, raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Our priestly king has come. He has done all that was needed to pay for our sin. His one sacrifice was enough. And today he is still our priest. He's our advocate at his father's right hand. And he reigns over all. One day he will return wearing this time his true crown and leading the armies of Almighty God. And on that day, every last enemy will be crushed under his feet. Zechariah's night visions have ended with a powerful sunrise. And we have been shown all of this for a purpose. In verse 15, our response must be to diligently obey the Lord our God. This book is addressed to men and women who are called to build. God's people in every generation have work to do. Yes, ultimately it's God who builds his church. But God uses human instruments to do his work. This bright ending to the night visions is here to encourage us to obedience. There is no enemy that can stand against our priestly king. God has set before us a vision of his power and his victory. And whatever darkness and difficulty we might have to go through, we are called to live by faith in our all-powerful priestly king. We're going to respond to this vision we've been given by singing, first of all, by faith we see the hand of God.